place it comfortably. So, day three. To give this talk a title, um, I'll call it Wise Action. But as a starting place, I just wanted to um, share with you an experience I had this morning when I got up <coughs> and when I was sitting. Um, as you all know, it was raining when we got up and it rained through the first few periods. And as soon as I, I got up and I heard the rain, I was just really enjoying the sound of the rain. There's something very, very comforting about it. And um, then we came up here and the rain was coming down on the roof gently. And I was really enjoying just being here listening to the sound of the rain on the roof. And I noticed what was arising in me is um, like a little child's voice inside is going, I hope it doesn't stop. Because <laughs> if it stops, then I'll feel really sad. And um, so there was this longing. There was a response of longing actually started to develop. I don't want the rain to stop. And eventually it did. It wasn't actually that bad. <laughs> and then it started again. But there's this response of hoping, longing, sort of a holding onto something emerged. So it creates a kind of suffering in a way. Not so bad I needed counselling or <laughs> antidepressants, but a little edge of suffering is there. Mm -hmm. And then, and then to, this is sort of, it's a little um, vignette which sort of describes what I'm going to go into. But um, what do you do when you realise that you're listening to the sound of the rain and it's a little edge of suffering there? Okay, and so you're a Zen teacher and you go, oh, I'm attached to the sound of the rain. I shouldn't be attached. I need to let go of that. Um, no, not really. To follow on from yesterday's talk about being with emotion, you hear the sound of the rain and so, as a human being, it evokes, in my instance, this feeling of comfort, um, pleasure, enjoyment, connection with nature, and then, and then the, the hope arising. So as an emotional response comes up. Um, but that emotional response is what is happening too, isn't it? That's just part of, in a sense, it's nature or it's the Tao emerging as a longing, it's just experience that comes up. So instead of opposing things, you know, and having this um, more um, uh, tougher, more yang, masculine approach, we've got to get rid of the attachment, uh -huh, the two kind of merge and the two, you embrace both. You embrace the sound of the rain and you embrace the longing for it not to stop. And then some words came into my mind which kind of encapsulated, which are the, the words of a, a corny song from the 1950s, but when you make it your own, it's not corny anymore. It's raining in my heart. It's raining in my heart. And when you, when you embody it in a few words like that, there's no, there's no longer any dualism, there's no longer any disconnect. They're both... They both just happen, they both emerge. That leads me into talking about um, a koan, uh, which you're probably familiar with. 
and from which we get the name the Ordinary Mind Zen School. And it's called Ordinary Mind is the Way, or Ordinary Mind is the Tao. Joshua asked, what is the Tao? Nansen, his teacher, replied, your ordinary consciousness is the Tao, is the way. How can one return in accord with it? Um, and Nansen replied, by intending to accord, by intending to accord, you immediately deviate. But without intention, how can one know the Tao? The Tao, Nansen said, belongs to neither knowing or not knowing. Knowing is false understanding, not knowing is blind ignorance. If you really understand the Tao, beyond doubt, it's like the empty sky. Why drag right and wrong into it? <laughs> um, so, a few points here. Um, what Nansen is referring to, really, is about not forcing something to happen. Mm -hmm. Not interfering, not forcing. And what the Tao is, in, in its most simple terms in English language, it is referred to the, as the way, that's one way of, of describing it. Another way of describing it, it's just what is happening. Whatever is just happening is the Tao. Mm -hmm. And if we try to force things, then we're out of step with the Tao. If we just do nothing, um, you know, we're not actually being present to what is, then we're not in accord with the Tao either. Mm -hmm. And this is, what, this is the essence of what I think leads to um, wise action as understanding some of these, going back to our Taoist principles again. Taoism uh, is made up of these two principles called yin and yang. Yang often being translated as the masculine principle and yin the, the uh, feminine. Um, and it's the point of Taoism in one of the Taoist sayings that says, know the masculine but keep to the feminine. Know the masculine but keep to the feminine. That's its principle. Um, but may I say too, um, in, sort of my, in support of my male friends and myself <laughs> here today, that um, uh, these, the yin and the yang works in both of us, right, whether we're male or female. Um, because you may be female doesn't mean you're closer to the Tao necessarily. Okay? <laughs> there are some men in which that sort of yin principle is very strong. There are some women in which that yang principle is very strong. It's not quite the same as um, a gender contrast, but rather a, a, a sort of form of energy where one's kind of loud and strong and vigorous and one's, one's not quite so passive but um, uh, stiller, uh -huh. more subtle maybe. Um, but it's not a gender divide. Um, you see those principles working in all of us. 
and our practices, whether we're male or female, is, is to pay attention to that, to come in accord with the Tao and work with the Tao rather than against it. Um, in the practice of mindfulness, as it's been developed um, and as it's become popular, um, there's a definition of mindfulness. Um, scientists always like definitions. Um, and uh, one definition by um, John Kabat-Zinn, who's been one of the main founders of mindfulness, who's a wonderful man. I've only met him a few times, but I feel a real friendship with him. But I don't quite, the definition of mindfulness doesn't really speak to me, and it, and it never has. And the definition is that it's intentionally bringing your mind back to the present moment in a non-judgmental way. And the sense of intention, you know, to bring it back, intention to bring it back, always seemed to me a bit too yang, a bit too much like trying to do something. Mm -hmm. We go back here to Joshua Nansen's dialogue. Um, Nansen says, by intending to accord, you immediately deviate. Intending to be mindful, in a sense, you immediately deviate. What's the, what's the answer? Just to be mindless? No. Um, let, me, let me humbly put forward another definition of it, which works for me better anyway. And that is that what mindfulness is, is allowing what is happening to be experienced. It may seem just like it's a nuance of words, but it emphasises the importance of receptivity rather than going out to get something. You know, if I look back on the way that I, I did practice mindfulness or Zen, Zen meditation for years, I think I've mentioned this before, but it, it, it was very yang. It was, it was like trying to really exercise that intention to be in the moment. You've got to be in the moment. Mm -hmm. So you've got to grab it, kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and that, that seized off over years. I have a very different approach to it now, where it's, it's a, a matter of reset. It's about a matter of turning up to be present, um, but turning up in a way which is receptive rather than going after something, or going after some kind of special experience. Um, we can hear the same words resonating in a poem by William Wordsworth called The Tables Turned. Um, enough of science and art, close up those barren leaves, come forth and bring with you a heart that watches and receives. And he goes on further, uh, or before that, in the stanza before that, about talking about the meddling intellect, mm -hmm. interfering meddling intellect that murders and dissects. Just receive, turn up to receive. Um, then you turn meditation into a much more um, enjoyable kind of experience rather than a chore. There's so many people um, are introduced to mindfulness and, and nearly everyone thinks this is wonderful, that's really great. The number of people who actually keep doing it is a huge dropout rate. 
huge. Even though everyone says it's really good, it really worked for me. Huge dropout rate. My sense piece, people are trying too hard. Mm -hmm. Trying too hard and then they give up. So they give up trying. Um, there is a, yes it does require bringing attention to the present moment, but it can be done in a more receptive, gentle, yin-focused way rather than a yang-focused way. Now, our everyday lives, to come back to wise action, our everyday lives are not as simple as the type of experiences we have during session, like listening to the rain. Mm -hmm. Not very much conflict in listening to the rain. Um, but in everyday life, in our interaction with other human beings, family members, partners, traffic, people at work, etc., um, it's much more complicated and it's often much more conflictual. So what is the place of these principles within everyday life? Do you know where there's, where there's much more intensity and conflict and so on occurring? Um, again, it's use, using these, these same principles so that we, they become the basis of, um, of, of wise action rather than unwise action. Um, Unwise action, like in dealing with conflict, usually just brings more conflict than winners and losers, etc. Whereas wise action um, breaks through a division in some way. And it doesn't mean doing nothing. It's not about passivity. Um, it's like Aikido. Like Aikido is a, is a form of martial art. But instead of trying, and it's opposite to boxing where you're trying to knock the other person over and knock them out to defeat them. In Aikido, you use the energy coming towards you, you know, and you use it to overthrow by not opposing. So often, not opposing but still doing something is often a wise course of action. Um, I was reflecting on this and on our session we're having here too. Um, just to give some feedback to all of you um, uh, as a way of maybe just trying to normalise everyone's experience, is that the first two days of this session um, have been unusually flat. Mm -hmm. Not for everyone, but as a general kind of rule, including me. And um, by flat I mean a lot of people coming in talking about experiencing dull mind, like really having a hard time staying awake and really dull, rather than racing mind. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's often the case for the first two days, but it seemed like someone put something in the drinking water or something this time. Um, hopefully it'll kind of waken up today just through um, the natural process of being here. And then I thought, as a teacher, well, if it really is this dull and it's kind of, kind of feeling this flat, what should I do about it? And years ago, when I used to be um, one of the session leaders and we had a much more yang kind of um, uh, dojo back in those days in the Sydney Zen Centre, I probably would have shouted, you know, or yelled, whatever, you know, to try and 
get the energy going, maybe get people to go running or something. Mm-hmm. Some vigorous thing to bring some energy into it. But I decided against that course of action. But it's not a matter of doing nothing. And, and if you still are experiencing um, dull mind, uh, then one of the simple things you can do, and I was reminded by this by someone who spoke to me in Dyson yesterday, and it's something I've done before. If your mind is really dull, have your eyes open, but don't look down. Actually up, look up at the level like that and have them quite open. And by bringing light into your eyes and keeping your head up like that rather than down, um, that'll help you to overcome dull mind. Mm-hmm. But it's much more subtle than shouting or screaming, using a stick. Uh-huh. But it might be more effective. Let me also give you some examples of how these principles can work in, in everyday life. There's a few stories I'd like to give you rather than explaining them, um, which may give you a sense of them. But there is a well-known story um, during the Second World War when the German military invaded Denmark. And after they did that, they wanted to identify who all the Jewish people were in Denmark. Um, and, you know, I assume with the view of herding them all up, you know, and then, and then you know, being part of the Holocaust. Um, so it's a very serious matter. And, and the Danish people were opposed to this. So what the King of Denmark did apparently, that, so all the Jewish peoples to identify them had to, by law, wear the Star of David as an identifying mark. And so the King of Denmark at the time, they, they weren't, they, they, were, they were a defeated, you know, um, country. Um, and so they couldn't use force to overcome it. So he came up with this very smart idea. Well, we'll all wear the Star of David. I'll wear the Star of David. We'll all wear the Star of David. And then they won't know who the Jews are and who the non-Jews are. Mm-hmm. So it's a, it's a much more subtle kind of response, an effective response, um, which doesn't require force. Mm-hmm. There's another one, which is a very interesting one. Um, now, um, whether this truly happened or not is another matter, but I'm not going to let facts get in the way of a good story. But there's a story of in the medieval ages that there was a village in Europe and, um, and they're a peaceful little village getting on with their own business. And then there was some marauding band of barbarians they heard were coming through and they had a reputation of being very vicious and fierce and pillaging and raping and so on. And they were, they were coming um, towards this village. And, um, and so the men in the village then had a a council of war, you know, to try and work out what to do. And they came to a decision that they, they had to, to defend the village and they had to defend the honour of their women and they would fight to the death. And that would be it. And they then announced this to the women in the village that this is what the plan was. And then the women said, well, hold on, guys. You know, we've, we've actually had a little council ourselves and we've come up with an alternative plan. And what the alternative plan was, they said, you guys just go, don't, don't worry about it, you guys go to the mountains and just hang out there for a couple of weeks 
And, um, and when the marauders come, well, we'll just put down on our finest clothes and we'll do our hair and a bit of makeup and we'll just be very charming and we'll seduce them. And, and if they want to have their way with us, well, they will and they might, you know, drink too much and eat too much and, and you know, steal a few valuables, but we'll just make love with them. You know? and, and so the barbarians came and that's what occurred. No one got killed. And the, and the men came back and there was an outcome. Instead of everyone being killed and raped and so on, um, they still had their menfolk as husbands and fathers of their children and they moved on with their life. Mm-hmm. The same principles um, are, have also been used in, um, in um, family therapy. And other forms of other forms of therapy, and to give you an example of it, um, many years ago I had a, a family came to see me, and the presenting problem is that the young boy, we'll call him Jesse to give him a name, is that Jesse was stealing money from his parents and doing it quite frequently, and they found out they were very upset about it, and so they they brought. The family came in, the whole family was invited to come in with Jesse. And so in exploring the problem, um, I came up with an intervention um, which perplexed the parents, of course. But what I, I suppose they presumed me to say that you know, um, Jesse shouldn't steal. But instead, what I said was that I think that Jesse needs to keep on stealing. And so I'm, I want him to keep on stealing and I don't want you to punish him for it. You may be aware of it and let him know, but I don't want you to punish him for it. And, um, and I said, the reason why I'm saying that is at the moment um, Jesse's restraint on stealing is you stopping him and punishing him and putting fear into him. Um, but... If Jesse doesn't get to understand how he feels within himself, that he might feel bad about it or guilty or whatever, until he actually experiences his own inner mechanism for writing his own behaviour, then he'll never understand that. So he needs to keep on stealing until he can understand that mechanism from within himself. And when I said that, Jesse said, You can't say that! (laughs) You can't say that! And I, I thought, aha, this is, this is uh, maybe going to work. <laughs> anyway, um, they seem to have a good outcome. And uh, you never know with these interventions how long they stick for or not. But as it happened, the mother of Jessie um, actually uh, turned up at the Sydney Zen Centre about 10 years later and she had a chat to me and she said, I don't know if you remember me, but you know, our little boy came in and was stealing. And, and they, she said, what you did was sort of a bit unconventional and weren't quite sure how it was going to work or it was really weird. But she said it worked. He stopped stealing and he didn't steal anymore. Mm-hmm. So it's an example of how you can use sometimes un- what appear to be unwise things but you, you're going with the energy, it's kind of like an Aikido approach to things rather than opposing. Opposition often just brings more opposition. Mm-hmm. 
even in even in political things, um, fighting racism with racism just brings more distress. You know, fighting sexism with sexism just brings more conflict into human behaviour. Um, there are much more subtle ways through conflicts. When we go about our everyday lives, um, we're constantly um, met with random kind of events, random things that are happening out in public, uh, on the road, you know, standing in queues, you know, or even in our personal lives, you know, we, we um, set up a, a dinner with a friend and then he cancels it and you set up another one and he cancels it and you set up another one and he cancels it. And it's like, how do you respond to those things? Well, someone told me the other day they just getting on with their lives and suddenly a letter came through the mail which had some unpleasant information. It's like things just turn up out of the blue. And our, our Zen practice, if it's working for us, if we just come back to allowing what is happening to be experienced, gives us the beginning skills about how to respond to all these random things that happen in our life. If we oppose them, we often just create more tension in the way we do things. It's just a silly example, but say you're standing in a queue and uh, you've been waiting there for, for a while and someone then come, pushes in in front of you. What do you do? Is it, really, is it really a Zen response just to do nothing? Well, you could. You could just let go of it and do nothing. But maybe a more active response would be to say, excuse me, I was standing here before you. And the other person might go, oh, I'm really sorry. Or they might say, oh, I'm in a hurry today. And so you just stand there. But it's, it's the actual doing of something. It's not just being passive and it's not just being aggressive either in some kind of way. One of the um, mantras um, that I'm, I find I'm constantly giving my clients who come to see me for counselling and psychotherapy because it comes up in relationships and conflicts in, in various kind of ways is calm assertiveness. Mm-hmm. Calm assertiveness. Usually assertiveness training is just referred to as assertiveness. But I put the word calm in front of it. And um, if people just passive and do nothing, they often feel very disempowered in their life and they feel like a doormat and they're walked over. So that's, that obviously doesn't work. Um, but many, many people's idea of, of, of asserting themselves is in a... In a a loud, aggressive, you know, yang kind of way, uh-huh. which often doesn't work either. And so the, the principles, you know, interpersonal principles to deal with conflict and dealing with untoward things that happens. In my mind, calm assertiveness is what, what aligns with the Tao. Mm-hmm. Not doing nothing, and it's not doing nothing which just creates more disturbance. There's a way through, and uh, I would encourage all of us. You know, when we leave session and we go out into our everyday world, um, uh, to see how much we can actually embody this to to practice calm assertiveness in the way that we live our lives. 
will have many opportunities to do it.